Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. of the internet. More privacy, less NSA surveillance. Treat people kindly. Start now. Proud to be for everyone. Hey there, and welcome back. As a hobby, birdwatching is over 100 years old, way older than the internet. But as you might imagine, the two go really well together. Few people know this as intimately as my guest today, Dr. John Fitzpatrick. As the director of Cornell University's Lab of Ornithology, Dr. Fitzpatrick and his team created eBird, a digital database where bird watchers log data about what birds they're seeing and where. eBird hosts 100 million bird observations from around the world. 100 million! John and his team also created Merlin. It's an app that's powered by the data from eBird that helps anybody, anywhere, identify birds in their area. My sons and I use it all the time. It's really great. John and I talked all about eBird and Merlin, from what it's teaching us about bird trends and changes in their populations, to what that information is teaching us about the Earth and how it's changing. Well, uh, there are around the world 10,000 species of birds, uh, so it's a treasure trove of information and it's a treasure trove of fun and uh, birding the basic idea is getting out into the wilds uh, of a city park or a beautiful national park or other place and, and identifying what's out there in any place around the world you can see birds literally from antarctica to the deserts to the forests and it's um it's like a perpetual easter egg hunt it's a you're always seeing new things you're seeing for example this time of year uh huge Troves of birds migrating back from the tropical wintering grounds to their northern breeding grounds. And uh, so every day is different. Every place is different. And it's incredibly stimulating for people with even just the most casual interests all the way to people who've been doing it all their lives and do it almost every day. Teaches us a lot. And birds really connect us with nature in, uh, in ways that no other organisms can do. So it's, it's got a lot of rich uh, opportunity for fun and question asking. And what is uh, what is your lab at Cornell specifically uh, tasked with, or what's your mission? The the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is the world's uh, most uh, intensive center for the study of birds, for training people about the science of ornithology, uh, for communicating around the world about the wonders of birds and their relationships with nature, and moving enormous amounts of data that we're now capturing through things like Merlin and eBird into scientific papers and conservation uh, action. So we're converting scientific information that we gather about birds into ways in which uh, conservationists can use it all over the world at this point. So it's a, it's a major center for study appreciation and conservation of birds. Can you talk a little bit more about 
why you were interested in birds and just generally, I think there's this idea out there, which you can sort of tell me is correct or not, that, but that, you know, birds have sort of inherently, they have a lot of information about our world, right? And oh, they absolutely do. Where I mean, they I go got, and I, what they see and, and, and tell us a little bit about why yeah. they're so important. I got interested in birds in Minnesota as a kid, four or five years old, and have never stopped the interest. Uh, began realizing that bird books had this ama- this amazing set of beautiful things that I could I could actually go out and look for and find and understand. And they've and they've now done that for millions, literally millions of people all across the country and all over the world. Uh, and it's really because birds are are this great combination. They kind of hit both sides of our brain. They are on the one hand, just aesthetic and spiritual things. They fly, they sing, they dance, they migrate. They do these things that capture our imagination in, in very spiritual, nonlinear ways. But they also, at the same time, they have a lot of information about their habitats. As bird populations go up and down, they signal changes in the underlying habitat. So they're fantastic tools for understanding how humans and natural landscapes interact. They're actually Given the kinds of work that we're now doing at the Cornell Lab with eBird, we're gaining information on a daily basis about how uh, populations are doing and how they relate to different specific land use practices of humans. So, you know, from the purely enjoyment level, spiritual level on the one hand, to the very detailed scientific understanding of nature, uh, birds give us a powerful opportunity to interact with the natural world. And I want to talk about uh, both of these apps uh, that you're now famous for, eBird and also the Merlin app in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to summarize, and we'll get there in a minute, essentially these apps are ways that people out there can, they're used to identify birds and they're also used to send information back to your lab as to which where birds have been seen. But tell me Definitely. before that, um, th- these apps are really uh, something, uh, not automate, but they are apps that are trying to recreate in a much more efficient way work that birders have been doing for a long, long time, right? And work that your yes, your center yes. has been doing way before there were apps and the internet. Indeed. What was it like to uh, get all this information, and how did you do that before you had these apps in the hands of all these people all over the world? That's a great question, and I, I well remember uh, the period before the internet uh, in which we were as, as a smaller operation at the lab, we were pioneering this idea of citizen science, the idea that we can organize information from the distributed citizens of the country or the world and and use it to understand patterns in nature. But before that, before the internet, this was done by the postal service and by, you know, bubble forms that one could scan with the old IBM scanners. And even before that, it was done on three by five cards that were that were built into these huge files and then people manually going through and tallying things up. So the idea of understanding bird populations through citizen engagement actually goes back to the turn of the 20th century when Frank Chapman and the fledgling Audubon Society began the Christmas bird counts. Uh, so it's way over 100 years old. But obviously, uh, on into the 1990s, we were trying to do this by a very cumbersome and uh, very sluggish, very difficult, very labor-intensive process. What was the, the Christmas the, bird the, counts? 
Christmas bird count uh, began around the year 1900 as a as an alternative to the so-called Christmas hunt or the Christmas shoot, hmm. in which people would go out and shoot birds. Instead, Frank Chapman and a group of people around New York City began saying, let's go out and count birds instead of shoot them. And so they began to organize this process, and it had uh, quickly evolved into a very well-organized process that is managed to this day by the National Audubon Society, in which over 3,000 spots around the country, people get out uh, on, on one day during a couple-week period in December and spend all day long tallying up the birds that they're seeing. Um, and uh, so that has produced this now 120-year spectrum of information about how populations have changed across the countryside in the beginning of winter. What what we do now with eBird is actually fundamentally creating something that does the same thing every single day of the year, every spot all over the world. And uh, so it's a, it's a sort of a new generation of the same idea, namely getting people, which are amazing sensors. We have these great things called eyes and these great things called ears. Uh, and now these amazing things called digital cameras, uh, and we can uh, accumulate just massive amounts of information in a very short order about the whole world's distribution of birds. So, well, tell, so tell is, us a little bit. It's been a steady process, but uh, as as the internet came uh, on board, it really became a took on a quite a different life. So, well, so tell me a little bit about, or tell us about how eBird works for those who haven't used it. eBird began as a website and is now a very, very usable uh, app for inputting information uh, about a bird list. So if you go out and spend 15 minutes or an hour somewhere watching birds, keeping track of what you're seeing, counting them, keeping track of the time you've spent and the distance you've traveled, uh, sending that in as a checklist, um, and that checklist becomes part of of a, a permanent global database here at Cornell uh, and now eBird is getting upwards of a million checklists a month, depending on which month. This is May right now, and we're going to probably get up close to a million checklists for the month of May from every country in the world. Uh, and these checklists are huge quantities of information, just what was there and what was not there during any particular moment that you're watching birds. So we have a real, we have a sort of moment-by-moment snapshot of where the birds are. And in migration, of course, this is super interesting because we can put all that together, do some modeling based on land cover and so on, and, and create these amazing uh, full life cycle maps of how bird distributions change uh, through the seasons. And, uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an amazing scientific resource right now. Hundreds of papers are now being published uh, on, the, on the data. And bird watching is popular enough and growing enough that eBird is actually now growing at a rate of 25 to 30 percent annually. So wow. it's, uh, it's producing a, a truly monumental database. It is the world's largest biodiversity database now, and it's getting larger by the minute. How does the million, the million a month checklist compare to, like, say, 10 years ago? Like, what's, how much, how many more? Yeah, good question. Well, it took us, uh, the, the, one, the one statistic I know quickly is it took us about 10 years to reach our 100 millionth observation. So we, we really started eBird in earnest in 2002, and in 2012, we cleared the 100 million mark for bird observations. Last year, 2017, 
during the year, we got more than 100 million observations. Wow. So we got more observations last year than we got during the first 10 years of eBird. Uh, and the growth curve, which, of course, we, we plot to understand how things are going, it's, it's literally it's exponential. So it's continuing to compound at around 30% annually. What are the, so I would just imagine that, you know, if you even go back to 2002 or 1992 or just a little bit, I mean, the le- the amount of data, as you just explained there, is exponentially more. Burgeoning, burgeoning, yeah. yes. What right? it, because in the, in the, in the, you know, 1990, when we were first doing these, the, the various sort of prototypes of, of uh, checklists, and this was all done by, on paper. And even the people that signed up, we would only get 10 or 15% of the sign-ups that would actually bother you know, finishing the reports and sending them in. So the, the process was extremely inefficient. So we're, we're getting in that era in the order of a few thousand reports. Right. The, the, at the lab, this began in the form of uh, bird feeder watching, a project that's still underway called Project Feeder Watch. Um, and we'd get a few thousand reports every year about what people were seeing at their bird feeders during the winter. Um, and it was a pretty well-managed project, but it, by scale, it was tiny. Well, what do, so what have you learned? I mean, I, I'm just, I would just imagine you must have learned so much more about birds in the last 20 years or since you've been doing oh, this. Than oh, what you knew. Yeah, like, what absolutely. are some of the big things that we've learned with all this new data that are either contradictory to what we thought before or just completely new? Well, so there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, it's a great question, and it's a, there's a lot of answers. The, the, well, the, the sort of general answer is that we're learning much more detail about the nature of bird distributions uh, and about migratory pathways, um, about population trends. We're beginning now to be able to have enough data that we can look back through time at any individual place and understand whether the populations of birds have changed through time at that place. Um, and uh, so, but, you know, we're, we're, I remember the first few times when people would pop on my door and say, Fitz, you got to see this. And uh, they'd show me this map, this model of bird distributions. The one that comes to my mind particularly is the orchard oriole. And we're seeing the annual migratory pathway of the orchard oriole. And suddenly we realized something we nobody had ever realized before, which is that they're separate populations moving separately at different times of the year and colonizing different portions of their range with different densities, such that it looks like it's really more like three different populations as opposed to one population. So that in turn spurs us to look in more depth about where those are wintering. And so, th- and, and that's just one species. Right. You know, there are 10,000 bird species out there and every single bird species has stories that we're still now beginning to unfold as a consequence of these data. So bef- the pathways of migration and the timing of the movements of different populations of birds are something that we knew only very, very generally before we could actually see these in detail. And eBird is allowing us to see the, the, the very, very fine-scale details of, of uh, when birds are moving and where they are most abundant and where they're less abundant. So before... Uh, with the orch- orchard oriole, for example, the idea, the thought was that all orchard orioles, you know, travel from here to here during this time. Yeah, they migrate from southern Mexico up to North America in the spring, and they breed and they move back in the fall. Uh, and if you look at the orchard oriole distribution maps, and that's still true today, if you grab any bird book and look at orchard oriole distribution map, it's the breeding distribution is what I call a blob. It's a it's a there's a it's a one color patch that uh, that covers basically southeastern United States, 
on a, over to the prairies. Well, if you now look at an at the eBirds um, full life cycle model of the Orchard Oriole breeding range, you'll see that it's actually m not a blob at all. It's a very heterogeneous uh, sampling of places of high density, medium density, absence, and then suddenly in May, late May, another huge area appears uh, out in the northwestern part of its range of birds that had stayed in Mexico much longer uh, and came up basically during a different period of migration than the ones that are in the southeast. Uh, and they themselves have their own little heterogeneous uh, uh, patchwork of, of places where they are breeding. So, you know, for, for any species, you can use that now to go, to go back and ask questions about the habitats that they're using. and wh Why are they so dense here and so rare there? Mm -hmm. uh, how does that relate to human land use? What does that tell us about the possibilities of actually recovering species that are uh, maybe uh, not doing so well? If we learn from where the birds are, we could actually begin to change behaviors and uh, revert to some populations that uh, maybe had gone down for a while. So, you know, it's just, and honestly, everybody who works with eBird data around the lab recognizes, you know, we have, we've, we've accomplished a lot and we're seeing just amazing things, but we're at the very, very start. Yeah. Uh, and so it's an ex extremely exciting time to be involved in eBird and to be at the Cornell Lab because of this. It's like your eye. It's like sort of on some level the eyes of the world have been open to birds. Right? I mean, it's like exactly. we were looking and through the, this teeny you know, pinhole, and now it's this giant, it's suddenly, giant. It's suddenly, we're, 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 there's a lot of things being revealed to us that have been going on for the millennia, but we've never been able to see them. And as I describe this, this is literally has the opportunity to change the relationship that humans have with the world. Because for the first time ever, thanks to the power of birds on the one hand and the power of the internet on the other, we can actually literally have a real-time monitoring mechanism for how the world is doing with respect to this natural systems. And obviously, in this age of climate change, global change, we're actually able to use birds as this proxy for some larger picture things that are going on out there. So birds are becoming a kind of a, si a signal uh, of, of, of local changes as well as regional and continent scale changes that, uh, that we have an opportunity now to understand much better than we ever could. And you, all, thanks to the, uh, all thanks to this really cool thing that people love watching birds. And, yeah. and for, for centuries they've loved making notes on them and writing them down. Now they don't need to leave three-by-five cards that their granddaughters and grandsons find in their attic, uh, those, those observations on a daily basis can go into a perpetually uh, maintained and studied archive. And, and you, you use the data you have, but you also overlay it and mash it up and look at and bring together other sets of data, too, right? Like you use NASA data as well to try oh, and yes, bring these. Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, those are, those are critical. NASA, the um, MODIS uh, data on land cover around the world are extremely important because those allow us to put, uh, along with human population densities and so on, allow us to make a model that allow us to predict with extreme accuracy uh, where birds are, even in spots around their range where people hadn't gone and counted them. So that's the key point. In fact, it's a, it's a vital point to understand that all of the um, data that we get from eBird, it's always going to be imperfect because we never have people observing every place at every time. Right. 
So what we want to do is be able to say, use those data, including, importantly, the absence of sightings. So if somebody goes out and makes a checklist and finds out that in this spot, there are no chestnut-sided warblers. Well, what's the habitat there? Uh, and the, by doing that over and over again in different parts of the chestnut-sided warbler's range, we can start to understand the actual breeding habitat of the chestnut-sided warbler and be able to then predict what, this is what the range is of that bird, even in places that were much, much more thinly covered than, uh, than in you know, densely populated spots. So you're learning. So those data, those NASA data, land cover data, uh, weather data, time of day, uh, effort for every checklist, uh, distance covered on every checklist, those are all used in the machine learning algorithms that are built to make these models. And then those algorithms go through the data and with the, uh, um, with the help of you know, high speed processing and parallel processing, all now done on the cloud, uh, we can create these models where three or 4,000 hours of computer time are used to create one model for one species for one year. Wow. Are there, are there birds that you thought didn't exist or that people thought were very, very, very rare that turned out to be, you know, more prevalent? Or did you, have, did you discover new birds that we didn't even know about through, through eBird? It's a good question. I don't think that eBird has actually been responsible for literally finding undescribed species. That itself is still going on, but it's going on in very remote places by hard work, people getting into the, into the wild and actually doing the, uh, the, the primary research uh, in the mountains of Peru and in the central Amazon and so on. Uh, I think what eBird does, much more importantly, in fact, I like to say the common birds give us much more information than the rare ones. Uh, what eBird does is allow us to understand a whole lot more about every one of these species, including the rare ones. Right. Um, so I think the real, the real meat of the discovery opportunities within the eBird database are not so much the kind of super rare uh, critical finds, but they are about the biology and the annual cycles and the, and the differing densities of populations of birds that we do already know about. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Right, because other scientists and other people out there who look at this data and in and, and your lab as well and other birders can, you know, just infer as sort of the example you were bringing up earlier that if a bird population was very prevalent in this area and now is not, that that might be because the area itself has, has changed, that there's exactly. less trees, there's less habitat, there's different types of water, whatever the, whatever the exactly. requirements are. And, and that kind of thing is going on 
all over the world, of course. Uh, bird populations and distributions have changed enormously as a consequence of human uh, population growth and the uh, in differing intensities of human land, uh, land use. Uh, what, that, what those in turn have done to bird populations have been only crudely understood until now. Uh, what we now have available to us is a way to very, very, in very great detail, understand those the detailed relationships so that um, even, you know, certain mowing patterns or certain planting patterns uh, in a prairie ecosystem and so on can make a big difference. Um, we can go in and compare site by site, go back down to the primary sources and find out what's different between those two sites and actually learn about the biology of the birds that way. Can you explain what mowing, just for people who don't know what mowing patterns are? Yeah, well, well, I'm talking about using the example of uh, pr uh, pr grassland systems in which uh, um, a, lot of, a lot of the landscape, of course, that we're interested in is landscape that humans are using. It's not all just wild parks. It's sure. where the most of the world is being used by humans. And what we would love to be able to understand is how does human behavior alter the population dynamics of these natural things like birds? And so mowing is, is a particular example of exactly when in the spring season a farmer goes out and mows the hay makes a huge difference, it turns out, on who gets to survive and make babies out there in that grassland. Wow. And it turns out just a few days difference of when the mowing cycle happens can be the life or death, literally, for whole populations of nesting birds. Wow. Do And do farmers know that now, and are they starting well, to that, react that's, it's to that It's beginning to be, yeah. The, the, the science of that is getting to be pretty pretty uh, exact. And of course, it differs species by species and place by place. Um, and this it, it, you know, gets off into conversations about things like the Farm Bill, which is coming up right now, in which we, uh, you know, hope, hopefully the Farm Bill will continue to be our, one of our very, very important sources of... Uh, of funding for private land conservation in places where that are otherwise under intensive farming. Um, and so as we understand more about the relationship between the farming behavior and bird populations, we can be more and more precise about how farmers can do their job, um, you know, live richly in and with their own economic uh, values and also do that side by side with the functioning bird population. You and bird is going to be a major tool for allowing that to get more precise. And you mentioned uh, that you use machine learning and a lot mm -hmm. of different models to gain insight into all the data. Um, right. And you've, we've talked a bit about eBird. There's this other app, though, um, which is called the Merlin Bird app, which you also uh, make. Right. Your lab also makes. And it's really, you know, the the definitive app for identifying birds and has, like, some really great technology um, it, it is. using um, where people can actually take photos of birds and you're using machine learning in the app in your database to um, That's identify right. birds through that. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure, yeah. Merlin, uh, and I'm going to confess right at the outset that when Merlin was first conceived uh, as an NSF grant proposal by our communications department, uh, I read the proposal and I said, I don't think this is going to fly. So I was a skeptic from the start. Uh, not only has it flown, but it has it has bit become an amazing system, and it's really fundamentally built as a tool for people who are not professional level quality bird identifiers, but instead want to identify the things they're looking at. It's a very easily used, free, downloadable app that will give you very quickly uh, some information about what you're looking at. Um, and when we added 
as a consequence of the um, uh, video recognition uh, software that has been developed. We added the ability to actually snap a photo of what you're seeing and instantly get that identified. It uh, improved even more uh, its effectiveness for people to be to use. It's now, uh, we have almost 3,000 species of birds that uh, Merlin works on. We're slowly building packs that can be downloaded for different parts of the world. Uh, North America first, of course, because that's where we are, and it, was, uh, it gave us, the, we had the highest, the richest uh, content to begin with about how to, uh, how to create the app. But slowly we've been uh, developing apps for Central America. We've got places in Europe and South America now where, uh, where, Eber, where Merlin uh, covers it. And it also gives you a very easy uh, opportunity just to explore the birds of that spot. So uh, it's not just a, an app for identifying a particular bird you're looking at. You can actually browse and see all the birds in that region. You can listen to their uh, songs. And so it's a, it's a very, very cool and still continuing to be modified uh, uh, app for anybody who wants to identify birds pretty soon, basically anywhere in the world. And do you, does the data of people, what people identify, does that go back as well, or is it just the data what, from eBird that gets what, sort of What we learned, data, the data from eBird is the main source of, of information that we've been talking about up to now about, about accumulating this enormous database of bird distributions. What we're learning about from Merlin which is really important in the process of continuing to improve Merlin, is how people describe a bird. If you look at an American robin and ask, ask uh, 100 people, what are the three colors you want to call that robin in the process of punching in your, in your little quick thing with Merlin? Some people will call that breast orange. Some will call it red. Some will call it brown. Yeah. Uh, so what we've learned, and this, this we are accumulating information on, what we learn is how people describe actual birds out there. Uh, and so that's, that, uh, in turn, we can build into the system uh, that helps Merlin become more effective at telling you what you're actually seeing or showing you the b best example of what you're probably looking at. The other thing to mention about Merlin, though, that is a continually changing and improving system is that it has a tight relationship with eBird. Right. So with eBird, we have the global community uh, al allowing us to get better and better at telling you wherever you're punching your, your wherever you are, eBird knows today what birds you're likely to be seeing there. So instead of, in, if you want to picture leafing through a 600-page field guide and wondering what you're looking at, eBird already knows in advance where you are because you're on, an iPhone, you're on, a, on mm. a mobile phone. And so it can say, well, the only possibilities for what you're looking at are this small subset. And now give me a couple in, little piece of information. How big is it? A couple of colors on it. And where did you see it? Is it on the ground? Is it in the bushes? Is it in the sky? And so uh, as a consequence of those small bits of information and the huge amount of information that we've accumulated from the global community, we can be pretty darn good at telling you what it is that you're looking at, and we give you three or four or five possible examples. And and if you've used it, you know that you know, almost always your bird actually comes up in the next in the first couple of uh, of of um, examples. The thing that still blows my mind is that we can do this now with photos, and the because we're getting, we now have I think it's we've now cleared seven million photos that have been submitted into eBird. 
And so armed with 500 to 1,000 photos of any given species of bird, we can create a remarkably accurate uh, video, rec um, you know, digital recognition system uh, that allows the Merlin uh, app to get pretty good at telling you what you're looking at. And I've used that, and, uh, and actually I've tested it. You know, I've taken purposely taken some really, really crummy pictures of mm. birds, and it's amazing how often Merlin gets them correct. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, now it's not surprising to me, but, you know, as someone who uses the Merlin app a bunch with my family and sons, um, it, the thing about it is that it, it does work so well, and I think that anybody who's used any of these types of apps, not necessarily around birds, but just around identifying things, always has this sort of feeling that you punch in the information and that you're going to, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Yeah. And the Merlin app, like, really, really works, and it's it's after a while you get used to the fact that it almost always comes back with the first, second, or third thing, which is the bird that you're uh -huh. looking at, and you learn about it. Yeah. Um, it's still, it's still honestly, to, to this day, it amazes me, and, I, and I've said people around the lab know. I, first of all, I was, I was skeptical about the process to begin with. When uh, when it started to put, be put together, I said, well, we're not going to release this unless a bunch of bird heads around the lab think it's really good. Right. Uh, and I, you know, I thought, so that that's you know, that's going to be a test. Well, a bunch of bird heads around the lab, myself included, so it was suddenly, you know, wow, this is really good. So then I said, well, what, you know, what are we going to charge for this thing? It's pretty amazing. It's unique. And when they came back to me and said, we think we should give it away, I thought, what? <laughs> but they're absolutely right because the, the, as a consequence, uh, more than two million people have downloaded it. It's, uh, it's being used by a whole bunch of people. There's a lot of people getting involved in birding for the first time because of Merlin. So clearly, they were right all these different times. And um, you know, I just work here. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing you brought up there about the Merlin app, which I think is really amazing, is that um, it does also have all these uh, bird calls in it and and songs and sounds. It's not just about looking. Yes. And I, you yes. know, as people who start off looking at birds, I think we really focus a lot on our eyes and what we can see. But uh, once you start using the app, you realize that sometimes you can't see the birds, but you hear them and you can actually just explore the birds in your area and listen to calls. And you can actually figure out what the bird is um, yep. if you only can hear the song, which is like sort of like a whole different way yeah. of perceiving the world, which is a really big part of birding, I think, right? Yeah, you're saying something really, really important about birding, and that is that uh, the ears are for anybody who's into it more than just the most casual way they realize immediately. The ears are equally important, if not more important, than the eyes for uh, detecting birds and even for identifying them. And uh, fortunately, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has the Macaulay Library, which is the world's largest archive of natural sound recordings, mainly birds. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of recordings of birds uh, around the world of known, you know, properly identified recordings. And those, in turn, we can use and we can load those into the Merlin app and uh, give you the opportunity to hear what, you know, in some cases, several different variants of a bird sound uh, are in addition to uh, information about the, the, uh, what it looks like. And, uh, and again, there's another place in which this close relationship between eBird and Merlin is, uh, is so important because we're continually getting new recordings submitted mm. through eBird and new images submitted through eBird. So these will be constantly used to update the quality and accuracy of the things that, uh, and ultimately, potentially even, the ones that are specific to the very spot that you are. 
Um, many birds around North America sound similar across their range, but that's not true elsewhere around the world. Uh, and it's not true for many species of North American birds. The song sparrow, for example, mm. across all, all of North America, but they sound pretty different in different parts of their range. So uh, knowing where you are, knowing which module you've downloaded, you'll be hearing sounds that are specific to the place that you're standing, which is really important. So tell me, just to take a step back a little bit, um, because so much of, of what we've discussed, and especially about birding, is like so local and spe- so specific, which birds you're looking at and what their color are and what they are mm-hmm. and what their song is. Um, and that, as you described earlier, is so enjoyable. Um, but just connect back to what you were saying earlier, which is at the end of the day, all this data goes back and forms this really big picture about the world. What have we learned about the world in the past 10 years that we didn't know before? And what, what are we learning about climate change that we didn't know because of all this information? I think it's a really good question, a super important question. And uh, my, my first answer is we're, we're still early in the process of gathering the information. So, and we're literally, this is quite literally true, um, we're just at the phase in which we can begin to dive into the data and answer that question in earnest. That said, we have learned some amazing things already about uh, migratory patterns. Uh, we studied, I don't know if uh, listeners might remember that the year 2012 was a very peculiar year in eastern North America weather-wise. Um, in February and March, it was like summer. Right, I remember uh, that. And, yeah. uh, and so that gave us, uh, one of our analysts at the lab, a chance to go back through the eBird data and compare what the migratory pathways were of birds before 2012, during 2012, and from 2013 onward. And what he found was really interesting, that the the, uh, birds that wintered in North America, like BBs and sparrows, certain sparrows, that are in the North American continent, just in the southern Gulf states, uh, they they moved properly. They, They moved early. They had the cues that this was an early year, and they moved up and and got to the north and started breeding at the period that was appropriate for that year's uh, uh, blossoming of resources to raise young with. Whereas Central American winterers and South, especially South American winterers, which have to begin their movement process way away from this anomalous weather system, they moved at their usual times. They came up into the North American breeding grounds too late that Mm. year. And what's amazing is that uh, this is Frank Lasort who did this work. And what he found was not only did they come up too late, but he could actually analyze the movement of birds back south in in the late summer and fall and realize that the numbers of birds that were moving south were higher, respectively, to their normals for the properly migrating North American birds and the South American winterers were moving in much smaller numbers, indicating they yeah, hadn't been successful at making babies. They hadn't bred as successfully. So, and that was just one, that, uh, analyzing one year, and it tells us something really important about climate change, which is birds that are doing these long-distance migratory movements, they're going to have a lot more trouble than uh, more locally moving uh, birds at handling the kind of anomalous weather patterns that we get as the climate is changing. Uh, That's just one example of the kind of uh, biology that's available for study in the eBird database. And um, again, as we've built now this 
enormous uh, trove of information annually all over the planet. The the process, and by the way, I should say that the data that we uh, are collecting are open to general use for, for at no cost for scientific purposes. So we have tens of thousands of uh, centers around the world have downloaded and regularly download eBird data to begin to analyze things for their particular places. What's so fascinating also is that these birds that uh, were in the southern United States, um, where they wintered there, these birds who are not connected to the internet, right? That they somehow, (laughs) they were somehow connected enough to something to know that they needed to be up in the northeastern United States earlier. They don't watch the Weather Channel either. That's amazing. What they're they're paying attention to are the cues, the local cues, and that's the key, the key point, obviously, is that they, they they had local cues that this was a year in which they should start moving early. And that and we didn't have, right? Did. I mean, we don't, we don't know what those cues are, really. Well, I mean, uh, certainly we we have some strong suspicion. They had to do with temperature. Right. Uh, had to do with rainfall patterns and temperature principally. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, as a, as a small-scale maple tree tapper, I can tell you that was a particularly strong year for maple syrup in huh. February. Interesting. Uh, and um, do, you think that, do you think that eventually the migratory patterns of these birds and through all this data that it'll be predictive of, like, we'll be able to start predicting weather and, and things in the future based on what they're sensing and doing? Uh, I think the other way around is the way to put this. What we will be able to do, and we are now, in fact, doing through a brand new, in fact, very recently, your listeners might might be uh, amused uh, or uh, excited to look at a website we recently opened called BirdCast. Uh, and BirdCast is actually using, has put together migratory patterns over the past 25 years in detail combined with weather information in detail using uh, information from the NEXRAD weather systems. And what, it's be, what that uh, is now allow us, allows us to do is to forecast bird movements one and three and five days from now huh based on the weather patterns that we see coming down uh, in the next red radar system. So that this, uh, this BirdCast website actually has, literally, it has nightly live uh, uh, maps of the migratory um, pathways of birds. Um, many people don't realize that almost all of our songbirds, uh, the small birds that live in the brush and trees of our backyards, migrate at night. Hmm. Um, easier to fly, less hazardous in many respects. Uh, they orient by stars and the moon uh, and by magnetic uh, cues. And so they migrate at night, and they're coming. They're just doing it right now. So last night, big migratory movement, I already know, because I heard three red-eyed vireos in my yard today, and they weren't here yesterday. So they're coming up from South America. They're coming in right now, and they moved in at night. And they moved because the weather patterns of this particular night were conducive to making a three or four or five hundred mile flight over the night. When you put that together with all the birds across the country, and you now understand that the next red radar system for us, the weather is the clutter. We remove the weather, and it has an amazing track of the birds that are there. And so we can now understand how they move with respect to weather systems, which in turn will allow us to predict which night of the next few, for example, the wind turbines in the wind energy farms of the Midwest maybe could be turned off from between 9 o'clock and 5 a.m. because that's going to be one of the biggest movement nights of the year for birds. That's fascinating. And so we're, we, we, we actually think that we've uh, landed on a way in which 
again, sort of the reverse of your question. I don't think the bird movements will tell us about the weather, but the weather can tell us a lot about the bird movements. And uh, now, in com combination with the U.S. radar system, we can get very good at predicting uh, migratory movements. Dr. Fitzpatrick, I could keep talking to you and asking questions about this for hours. It's so fascinating. I want to congratulate you and thank you and everyone at the Cornell University Lab of Ornithology for all the work you're doing, for giving us these apps. Um, I know I personally, my family loves them. I know so many other people out there really adore them. And uh, just it's an incredible amount of data that you've been able to bring from people all over the world. And I know it's going to have a big impact. So we're all just uh, so thankful and just want to congratulate you and your whole team. Thanks very much, David Michelle. It's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, great to talk with you. And um, we ourselves feel privileged as uh, could be to be working on such a fantastic group of animals. Thank you. And I want to encourage our listeners. We'll do a little, uh, some, some more input at the end. But, you know, if you don't, haven't used the Merlin Bird app, if you're a birder and you're not all over eBird, which I'm sure you are, you really should check it out. And Thank you so much to Dr. Fitzpatrick for speaking with me and for pursuing such great and important work. Be sure to check out the eBird database and take the Merlin app on a spin around your neighborhood. You'll definitely have fun and you'll help contribute to a global network of super important bird data, which is, I think, pretty cool. Our producer is Sebastian Ade. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a mariachi band playing supermarket sweeps. And with that, that wraps season three of the Webby podcast. We are taking a short break for the summer, but we'll be back with more amazing interviews in the fall. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.